Hello and welcome to the inaugural Bite Back podcast. We'll be playing host to a rotating cast of our authors as they come onto the show and chat about their background, their books and more besides. And who better to kick off the podcast than a member of parliament? As a political publishing house, uh, we often publish books by people who are plugged into the Westminster bubble, but never one quite like this. An in-depth look at the hidden Scottish radical movement by longtime MSP and now MP Kenny McCaskill. So sit back and enjoy. Okay, let's get started in that case. Yeah, if you could tell me a bit about yourself and how you came to be an MSP and then MP. Well, a bit by accident. I got into radical politics, supporting the cause of independence. Uh, For many years it was in the wilderness, and uh, it was only with the arrival of the Scottish Parliament in 1999, the change in the voting system, that I ended up being elected. I had stood for many times, indeed I think I first stood for Parliament in 1983. I wasn't elected to Westminster until last year, Uh, but I'd been involved in the nationalist cause and uh, and in uh, various causes uh, of the left, and so it was uh, when the when Holyrood was established, and I went, and uh, the world has changed, and my life has changed with it. How do you find it being an MP now after having been an MSP for so long? Like, what is it a different experience? I imagine it must be. It's the same but different. I think it's probably stepped up a few gears. The pace is probably faster and more relentless. The volume of information is greater. Mm. Some things are worse. The voting system is frankly antiquated and ridiculous. Uh, the waste of time going through the lobbies. And equally, uh, for many years, although I was an MSP, I then became a minister. And it'd be fair to say that being a minister is pretty full on. Uh, especially at some of the things that I was presiding over. So the transition from an MSP to an MP is a step up in gear, but it's probably not any greater than being a minister. Uh, so it's the same, but different. It's new things to enjoy and you, you just have to learn the rules. Do you have your favourite like balmy tradition from Westminster? Not really. I find it quite antediluvian because it's not even as if it celebrates the glories of the empire. It celebrates the glories of the English Civil War, or as we called it in Scotland, the War of the Three Kingdoms, given that people forget that Scotland and Ireland took different positions, uh, given recent uh, situation in Europe. Uh, some things, uh, history repeats itself. So uh, I just find uh, the place, to some extent, rather shabby. Uh, I think the most interesting thing was a friend of mine who actually is in the House of Lords took me there when it seemed positively opulent, which shows both historically and probably now uh, where the real power lies. Quite possibly, yeah. So you started off your career studying law and then how did you kind of segue from that into history? Have you always had an interest in history? I, I mean, I, I basically stumbled into law and nobody in my family had studied law and very few people in my school had ever gone on to law. It was just something that somebody suggested and I thought, why not? Uh, I was going to university in 1976. It was going to be difficult if you graduated in history, which is probably the alternative subject I would have done. Mm-hmm. You were going to end up either training to be an accountant or becoming a history teacher uh, and there were problems or I didn't fancy uh, that. So I actually went into law. I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, Equally, the reason I've continued is that I've always felt that doing a degree in law, I've spent a lifetime trying to get an education. It's uh, an enjoyable degree. We're never going to go back to the days as it used to historically be in Scotland that uh, uh, law was a 
postgraduate degree, uh, student loans, uh, uh, even in Scotland, the absence of tuition fees mitigate against that. But I do kind of regret that uh, I never had the opportunity to do a more general arts degree. So I'm um, a bit of an autodidact. I tried to uh, I tried to learn because much as I enjoyed doing my law degree, it was rote learning. You could prepare four weeks before, memorise it and pass. So did you do history on the side in that case, just kind of keeping... Well, I've always tried to read widely, you Mm. know, also, not just non-fiction, but I've tried to read widely. History does interest me, Mm. and I've tried to ensure that I don't get burrowed down in narrow bits, as is sometimes the difficulty, you know. uh, So I've always tried to, to... look, listen and learn and actually being a member of, of parliament and indeed the Scottish parliament has given a, you know, an opportunity to learn you know quite a lot about uh, a lot of things as indeed in law you know you know doing various cases because I was a court lawyer you know you learn lots of little things about very strange things from uh, you know, uh, various cases that I did that were fascinating at the time so I've always just tried to broaden my knowledge. Yeah so history and then Scotland's radical history how did you come interested in that like how do you even find out about it because it's not well known is it really well it's not well known and I think that's not by uh, accidents by design uh, uh, radicals have been written out of history not just in Scotland but in England uh, you know it's uh, history written by the victors and uh, unfortunately that's been the establishment and the ruling elite which is why when we walk around whether it's the streets of London or Edinburgh you see the statues to the lords and ladies you don't see them to the ordinary people who quite often opposed them. Uh, so I basically stumbled into this during, you know, my lifetime. I read things like Tom Johnson's history on the, of the Scottish working class. I found that eye-opening. It was when I stepped down from Parliament. I'd always wanted to write the biography of Jimmy Reid. I thought there was a, something wrong that a man who was so iconic that there was no biography of Jimmy. Quite shameful. Uh, so it was a pleasure to write that. But writing about it got me into the history of what had, who had inspired him, which led to the Glasgow 1919 book. And again, that then led on to the radicals because there's a chain as it goes right through from those who rose in 1790s through 1820 to the Chartists, to the Independent Labour Party, to the Red Clydesiders and on to today. And so it's that thread and much of it, uh, much of it remains the same. It's, uh, it's a moral basis of socialism. So what ways do you think they changed Scotland in that case then? I think, you know, I mean, they, they, they did eventually deliver the universal franchise, although sadly it didn't come until 1918. But, you know, uh, they're, they're uh, suffering from 1820 and 1790s, raised the profile. Uh, they had to struggle long and hard, which is why we should commemorate them. But uh, I think what they did was they, they passed on that uh, that nucleus of an idea that, that continued. And that runs on to today. It's a... It's a constant struggle for the rights of ordinary people. We're in a world of austerity. We might have the right to vote, but if you're in a council house with rent direct on universal credit, out of work, you know, frankly, you don't think you've got that many rights and getting to vote once every four years or even less isn't actually going to transform your life. So mm-hmm. there's work to be done by those of us who want a better world. Yeah, so are there any ideas that the radicals didn't manage to enact, as it were, that you think should actually be introduced into law? I think we've got to remember at that time they were really pushing initially only for the universal franchise. It later developed more broadly into economic 
situation. I've only rationalised, historians will know better than me, but it seems to me that perhaps at that time they weren't challenging economic rights other than the rights of the large landowners because people had so little. We didn't live in a consumer world. So I, I think it's not specifics, it's a broader a better, fairer, more decent world where people are valued as individuals, that they have rights that are uh, are self-evident, as uh, uh, one particular country that sometimes forgets it uh, seems to declare. Uh, so I think it's the same values that they stood for in 1820 that resonate as loudly 200 years on. Could you give a like a brief overview of the book and of the, the movement and then the key people in it? Well, the book's the history of Scotland during the French Revolutionary Era because it's quite clear that uh, uh, the French Revolutionary Era, uh, we get a perspective from watching Sharp or Hornblower or reading, you know, the novels that everybody in Britain was anti-French. Far from it. In Scotland, that's maybe less so because of the historical old alliance, although that's often overplayed. But actually, people, the working people of Scotland and England, were enthused by liberty, equality, fraternity. That seemed a right damn good idea to <laughs> them, whatever may be suggested. And uh, the country was lit up, uh, oppression took place. We've got to remember that in Scotland at that time, the franchise in a country that was approaching two million people was had by 4,000 people, and they reckoned that half of them were fictitious. Wow. It's utterly fraudulent. It was oppression by uh, a rich oligarchy of landowners. So they rose, they were transported, uh, Thomas Muir and his martyr colleagues. Uh, the the uh, attitude transformed, uh, as we saw with Peterloo. People decided that if they were going to be pushed, they would fight back. Mm. And although 1820 wasn't directly related to the martyrs of the 1790s, the ideas were, and actually they had kept it alive. And what focused it was when I found the story through an Australian historian of the Martyrs Memorial that everybody in Edinburgh knows as part of the landscape. They see it. If you ask them to identify what the obelisk is, few of them will know. But it's actually to the political martyrs. And the story of that was that the Tory council wanted to object to it being put up in the 1840s because the radicals were recognising that statues were going to the lords and ladies. Princess Street, George Street, all these big things. History was being written, and they were being written out, and they decided that they wanted to record their history. So through public subscription, they put up this to record their history. And I think, you know, the book is actually starts there, and it goes through the history that we didn't get at school, where I grew up knowing more about Peter Lou than I ever knew about the massacre of Trenent, despite the fact it was 40 miles up the road, that I knew more about Sharp and Hornblower and the antipathy between Britain and France and between the fact that Thomas Muir and Mulcair, the overwhelming majority of the people of Scotland, were enthused by the French Revolution. So it's that that culminates in the rising of 1820 that we commemorate this year. What was the most interesting thing you learned as a result of researching I, I think there were two perceptions of Scotland that had been challenged, or challenged, not just the French Revolution, but I grew up in Scotland where you tended to believe that everybody had been enthralled to the National Kirk, the Church of Scotland, mm -hmm. and that everybody had just grown up wanting to join the army. We were some martial race, almost <laughs> Spartan-like, but transformed to Northern Europe. And in fact, researching the book, it became quite clear long before the big schism of the Church of Scotland in the 1840s, dissenting churches were 
substantial. Anything between a quarter to a fifth of central Scotland weren't in the Church of Scotland. They were either not religious or they were formed their own churches because they weren't having churches, despite the radical position that the Church of Scotland tends to espouse of being a democratic church. The landowners at that stage had rights and people refused to go to a church where the minister was being appointed by the landowner and actually it became quite clear that the Church of Scotland in the 1790s was along with the legal system an arm of the state. So that challenged the perception that we had been this country that basically the Kirk ruled the roost and everybody was part of the Church of Scotland until the Catholic migration came in after the famine. I found that something that hadn't been told to me. And similarly, you know, in 1790s, the massacre of Trent came about because people opposed conscription. Not only did they oppose conscription, they didn't like the army. You know, the army wasn't popular. And yet mythology in Scotland has that young people in the 19th and 20th centuries, they just were born and just dreamt of joining the army. I attend veterans' events. My father served in World War II. I'm proud of the military <coughs> service that he and others have carried out. But this idea that Scotland is somehow or other this Spartan-type society is not the case. We opposed the military. And indeed, what became quite clear that I hadn't known of they had built during the French Revolution garrisons all across central Scotland, not to repel French invaders, but to deal with what they euphemistically called internal tranquility, because they realised they couldn't billet troops with the ordinary people, because they were saying, why are you with them and not with us? Why are we fighting France rather than supporting the ideas of the French Revolution? Mm -hmm. So those two myths of the power and the omnipotence of the Scottish, uh, the Church of Scotland, and the mythology of the martial race, I think, were well and truly burst. And what about this massacre? Uh, can you give us a bit more of a background on that? Well, there were, in 1797, they decided to bring in conscription in Scotland because the army uh, wasn't was having to expand to deal with the, the Napoleonic wars that were coming in as the French Revolution moved towards the Napoleonic era. They brought conscription in in England earlier, but in Scotland they knew it would be a politically hotbed. But like the poll tax sort of thing, they knew it would be even more uh, more uh, opposed up here. Uh, uh, so what happened was there were demonstrations all over Scotland, you know, significant outbreaks of almost a hundred outbreaks of disorder across all of Scotland. In Trenent, they put the army in, and as I was reminiscing in a speech in Parliament, uh, the Earl of Liverpool, who became the, uh, I think, the th third longest serving uh, Prime Minister in Britain, uh, was the military commander at Trenent in 1797. Uh, troops from the Sinkport Cavalry and the Pembrokeshire Cavalry were there, and basically 12 civilians were gunned down in a wee village of less than 2,000, or indeed, shamefully, pursued across fields by uh, dragoons with sabres. They were not just men, they were women and children, most of whom was accepted by the uh, authorities as having nothing to do with the demonstration. But it's something that I didn't know about, yet mm -hmm. I grew up, as I say, less than 40 miles from it. So it's been written out of history. Uh, and that, as I say, uh, was an important uh, aspect of Scotland, enthused by the French Revolution, not wanting to go to war and just wanting to get on with a better life. No, it's an uncomfortable history, isn't it? Absolutely. Really? Uh, what's one thing that you hope that people will take away from reading the book? I think I would hope that they would recall the importance of the martyrs in uh, Scotland's history. A lot of Scottish history has been mythologised. Uh, you know, Bonnie Prince Charlie, Mary mm -hmm. Queen of Scots, William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. 
but actually there's a radical history of people who have fought for Scotland. The uh, Thomas Muir, the 1820 Rising, the Chartist, Keir Hardy, the Red Clydesiders. So I think it's that radical history, the values that they fought for, the better society that they dreamed of, and living at the present moment, having gone to a, taken over a wee flat here in London that has a gated community with people sleeping on the streets outside, mm. I feel ashamed, you know, mm. there is work to be done. Looking at it from like a more modern perspective, like what kind of future do you see for Scotland post-Brexit, now we've left the EU? I see an independent Scotland. I think something's become an inevitability. And mm. I think what we're seeing, as with Brexit, which I think is a tragedy and a retrograde step, people now view the breakup of Britain as almost inevitable. And indeed, uh, some English Tory voters view it as positively, <laughs> positively to be encouraged. Mm. Uh, I think these things have a habit of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. And exactly the same as 100 years ago, British Prime Minister were pledging that Britain and Ireland were indissoluble and the empire would never be broken. Exactly the same as India was the jewel in the crown that they would never leave. And even within my lifetime, uh, Hong Kong was part of Britain. We wouldn't cede it to China. There will come a time, I believe, after next year's elections when it will be quite clear that Scotland is parting in the ways. And we part as friends. You know, we share an island. Uh, we have common relationships. You know, we share the same interests. But I think the time has come for Scotland to be an independent country in its own right. The only downside is you'll be out of a job. That's <laughs> it. Well, I'll have other things to do. So, um, what have you got in the pipeline? Do you have any more books coming out? Well, I had because I hadn't intended coming back into the political fray before I was shamed by some and encouraged by others. And uh, I had started researching another book on prisoners of war and conscience in Scotland because mm. uh, uh, we've written a lot about emigration, including myself. I've done books about emigration, both those who, the majority, who went for love or opportunity, the minority who were cleared from the land. But equally, I think there's a story to be told about those who were actually sent because they were either prisoners of war or prisoners of conscience. And there are certain sections of that in Scotland. We had the, the covenanting prisoners sent by Cromwell. We had covenanters themselves sent by a Scottish administration. We had the Jacobite prisoners sent to the West Indies and sent to America. And we had through to the 1820 rising when people were sent to Australia. So I was going to write a history of Scottish prisoners of war and conscience, but I've got willied. Hope to return to that uh, once my uh, sojourn down here has ended. You say you're ashamed into standing for MP. Well, I had an old 80-year-old pal who knocks every door in a wee town in the community, uh, the county I not represent, and when he's finished, he goes back round again. And during the referendum, he did exactly the same, despite the fact he needed a hip operation. And he was saying to me, what are you contributing to the cause? And I felt ashamed. And equally, I had an even older friend who's a very famous photographer who was saying, give it one more shot. So I was shamed and encouraged to give it one more shot and I'm back here. Yeah, that it was successful. And yeah, last question. So if someone was looking to read out more about Scotland and Scotland's history or culture, do you have any favourite Scottish authors that you would recommend people read more of? Well, if you want the actual history, I think you can't go uh, far wrong with Tom Johnson's history of the Scottish working class. I think that gives an overview. But, you know, we've got really good uh, historians in Scotland at the moment. Uh, Murray Pittock's done remarkable work on Culloden. Tom Devine's done great work on emigration, as have many others. But I actually think, you know, if you're looking for more contemporary Scotland, I like the works of, you know, Alan Bissett that uh, uh, I think who talks about the Scotland that I grew up in because mm. you know I grew up in Scotland and it's not so much in books but I talk about movies 
I remember going to see Gregory's Girl, the movie, you know, about... And it was the first time I had seen Scotland on a big screen where we hadn't been either drunk, historically, you know, uh, you know, fighting or something like that, or it was something like Lassie or Geordie, you know, that actually was about the Scotland that I grew up in that was housing schemes, small estates. I think Alan Bizet writes about that, but there's, you know... Lots of other young activists. The, the referendum in Scotland had a remarkable initiative called, you know, the Radical uh, Collective that brought together, you know, playwrights like David Gregg, writers like Alan Bizet and others. And I think their work is phenomenal. So there's a lot of good work coming out of Scotland in all spheres that's really worth looking. And, uh, you know, I like, uh, I, I like that contemporary stuff. It brings home, you know, life in Scotland as it is, as opposed to the mythology. What do you think about train spotting out of interest? I read it and I enjoyed it. I just tend to think that a lot of that glorifies, and you know, are there bits like that? I know Muirhouse, I used to represent Craig Miller yesterday. So I think you know, the problem is it takes it too much one way. Uh, I think, you know, there are areas like that, you know, the Begbies do exist and having been a defence lawyer, I've represented a few of them equally. The vast majority of people in difficult areas are law about how decent people don't take drugs and don't commit crime. Uh, crime has suffered disproportionately by the poor, even if it's the wealthy that protest about it most. Mm, and something that the radicals would have wanted to change. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think you know. I think you find you know, you look at Jimmy Reid and others. They were actually you know the, the the moral aspects as opposed to the theoretical, dogmatic, scientific socialism. Some things were just right and wrong, and you know. We have to analyse and understand why crime comes about because of austerity and uh, inequality. Equally, people who suffer from austerity and inequality don't always do that, so you understand why. Mm -hmm. But I think, I sometimes worry about the glorification of the worst aspects of society in Scotland. You know, you see it on television about how we can drink everybody else in the world under the table, how we're rougher, tougher than people down south of the border. Actually... There's a lot of good things to be told about Scotland. It's nothing to do with our level of alcohol consumption or indeed to do with whether we're macho or not. It's about just being good people contributing. So that's why uh, I much prefer other aspects of Scottish society rather than the glorification of uh, things that we have to tackle and address. Yeah, that makes sense. And then one last question. Were you in London for Brexit today? No, I was in Scotland, I have to say. I thought it was a moment of... Uh, great regret. I was in East Lothian. I represent, we have red pantiles in the roofs and the houses there because of the trade that we had centuries ago with uh, with the low countries. We have pubs there called Gothenburgs because we brought in the concept of community-owned cooperative pubs from Gothenburg in Sweden. You know, so the links from East Lothian with Europe are extensive going back centuries, not just people who have come in my own family from Poland and Germany and married in or are part of the family now. So it's a retrograde step. That's not where Scotland wants to be. It's not where the UK should be. We should be back in Europe. You know, my father fought in World War Two, not to glorify World War Two, but to fight a war against fascism and create a peaceful Europe. Mm. Well, thank you. No, very much thank you. Thanks for making it to the end of our first Bite Back podcast. Don't forget to buy your copy of Radical Scotland on Amazon or our website www.bitebackpublishing.com. Gotta plug it somehow and stay tuned for further insights into the world of publishing. And do join us next week to meet our next guest, French football journalist Matt Spiro.